I'm Neil Sharp, a partner at Penn Partnership and your host for this podcast. Today, we're going to take a look at how leading organisations really get to the bottom of what their customers are thinking and feeling about their experiences with them. How many times have you been offered a survey to rate the service of an organisation and thought, no thanks, not now? It's well known that quite often the only time that people do give feedback is when they're either angry about something or they're absolutely delighted. And at those moments, you feel the time is right to let companies know how you feel. But what about the times when you're not bothered either way? Many of our clients are grappling with how to best measure what customers think of them. Are surveys enough? Do you need to do more with the data that you hold about what customers are doing as they navigate their way through your increasingly digital lines of communication? How do you take all of the data you have access to to transform it into insight that people can act on to improve the experience and drive performance? Coming up in this episode, I'm joined by Claire Sporton. With a background in psychology and systemic management, Claire has over 20 years experience as a consultant and a CX practitioner. She spends her time helping organizations bring together customer, employee, and partner perspectives and taking them and enriching them with financial, operational, and other behavioral data to create rich insight that actually drives positive change. She's an expert in using innovative new technologies combined with behavioral economics to put the insight and the accountability for driving change into the right hands to make a real impact. She's a regular speaker at conferences globally and has become well known for her pragmatic and engaging twist on experience management. So let's get stuck into this conversation and find out what Claire thinks about how to get the best insight from your customers. Hi, Claire. First of all, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. Now, as I said in the introduction, you're globally recognized as a customer experience and customer success expert, which uh, I thought was a great title. And I know that you do a lot of work driving innovation, using insights and behavioral economics, particularly in technology to, to try and improve not only customer experience, but also empowering decision making within organizations and ensuring that you've got the accountability in the right place within the enterprise. And I really want to get into some of that because I think that's going to be hugely interesting to our listeners. But before I do that, you know, I know that when we first met, you worked uh, for one of the major VOC companies and you were looking, uh, working on new approaches to experience engineering. But could we sort of start off by just hearing your story in your own words about your career path and how you ended up doing what you're doing today, please? Yeah, of course, Neil. And firstly, thank you for having me. It's great, it's great, it's great to be here and, you know, great to have the conversation with you. Just surprised that anybody else is really interested in listening to it. But, you know, okay. So how on earth did I get into this? Well, it must be, it must be said, I don't know many eight-year-olds who wake up in the morning and go, oh, I know, I want to be a customer experience expert. Wow. So, what I was interested in, though, from from a very early days is, you know, how the human brain works and how we make decisions. And that kind of took me into the area of organizational psychology. And particularly, you know, I think what, what fascinates me is that piece around you know, how, how human beings interact with each other. So it's much more about that systemic piece as well. So I became an expert expert in kind of account management strategy. So I was working okay. particularly in the B2B world, looking at how organizations can understand better their clients and work more effectively with them and use some of the, um, at that time, there was no such thing as behavioral economics, but looking at how, how we can understand people's ways of thinking and drive that. And that was really, it must be said, the slippery slope um, into, into CX. And I 
came upon it and just went, my goodness, this is exactly what I need. I've been talking about it very much from a a psychology perspective and an organisation perspective. Mm. Wow, this is giving me a real different piece. So that was the beginning of the end, I suppose. And since then, I've worked client side, you know, running my own programme and and developing that again in the B2B space. And then for many, many years, obviously working with lots of organisations, helping them develop their CX strategy. And most importantly, I think this is where my angle on it all is, is around driving change and actually ensuring that these CX programmes aren't just about listening, but about doing Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, There's nothing more frustrating than setting up a wonderful capture infrastructure within an organization and then watching them do nothing at all with it. And it's happened on a few occasions in my experience. So, so I, I, you know, that's the piece about, and you know, a lot of, a lot of CX, I, I obviously haven't come from a research background, but you know, a lot of our colleagues and friends in this space have, and you know, we do the research piece and it's got to be robust. It's got to be valid. You know, we've got to be making sure that we're making decisions on the right data, but let's just be aware of what's good enough and let's kind of, you know, focus more on, okay, so how do we use it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And when I first ran my, I had my own voice of the customer business years ago, um, as you know, and it was all about surveys and it was all about even manual analysis of verbatim comments. So we used to sit there plowing through thousands of comments and, and cr- uh, coding the sentiment. And I have to be honest with you, I still sometimes go back to that because I find that whereas machines are pretty good at this stuff, there isn't really anything that beats the human brain to kind of connect with what's going on so um, don't you love a verbatim you know it's i do bad isn't it that you're i do like, oh, let's kind of sit and just read yeah no it's, and it's you a bit of so much from it neil you do yeah you know no, it's a real guilty pleasure actually um <laughs> Shouldn't confess that. But I mean, I, I think we did a great job at really helping organizations to get a sense of what was going on. But it was very manual and it was very, very survey based. So uh, could we sort of switch into, I mean, what are you doing now in terms of the work that you do at OCX? And, and you know, how is that big shift coming on, particularly around collaboration across the business and, and sort of use of technology? What, what are you up to? Oh, there's, there's so much that we can talk about here. I think, you know, first thing is, you know, when we did survey, when we did, we're still doing surveys. Surveys are not dead. Let's let's be clear. I can talk more about, you know, how we can use surveys in a very different way. But but when we really started that kind of outside in, it was quite groundbreaking, wasn't it? You know, mm. prior to that, as business people, we were all going, well, I know what my customer wants. You know, I, I know it all. And, you know, making that big assumption. And so, so actually starting to listen to customers was, you know, a big step change for industry. I think the assumption that we've got that's wrong is that our customers know why they make the decisions they do as well. And the assumption that that's all, you know, very rational decision making and that we just ask them and they will tell us. Well, please don't get me wrong. We still need that. We need to understand how people feel. And you can only get that from verbatims and actually listening to their voice. But don't assume from that that they actually know why they're making the decisions that are. And, you know, one of the big challenges from a predictive perspective is, you know, does it actually influence the behaviours moving forward? So one of the big challenges that I think we have as an industry is 
A, are we measuring things by just looking at surveys and not looking at behaviours? Do we really understand what our customers are going to do? And then the second, you know, the big challenge with surveys is, I don't know what, you know, your latest response rates are like, but, you know, 15%, you know, people are going, well, hey, you know, I'm 15% of my customers. So you know what 15% of your customers think once a year or once every six months or whatever else. Now, if, if you were looking to run any other part of your business with data around 15% of the operation once a year, you'd think I was absolutely mad. Uh. So it's got to get much more real time. And we've got to start using the other data sources that is available to us to really start to drive the understanding. So yes, we need surveys. Yes, we need to understand that. But hey, guys, what about all of the other data that's available to you? You know, how are you using that and how are you bringing those together? So some kind of unified view of behaviours. What are you, I mean, practically, what are you using? Are you using AI or what what, what kind of technologies? And, and what does it feel like within the organisation? What are the employees and the management see day to day? I'm sort of fascinated in kind of how you use this stuff operationally to make a difference. Right. You know, I've been talking, I, I got, went to so many conferences. Do you remember conferences when we used to um, actually vaguely, go outside? Yes. <laughs> I was just, and I, I remember, you know, everybody was talking about AI, weren't they? You know, AI. Every, every conference you went to, there, there had to be AI somewhere in the title. And, and I started to kind of do a little bit of a kind of you know, emperor's new clothes on it, going, well, what actually are you doing? And people would kind of, oh, we've got a chatbot. Um, and you kind of, is that using AI or is that rules-based? You know, is it just taking you through um, a, a script? Well, yes, it's rules-based. Um, and talking to the analysts, it was the same piece. I started to ring up analysts and say, come on, you know, what are you really doing? In the CX space, please don't get me wrong, there's loads going on with, with AI, but how are we using it in reality um, within CX? And yeah, I was getting, you know, blank faces. It's chatbots. So what I was really interested in was thinking, oh, my God, we've got to start to, there's got to be an opportunity here. So what we're doing very, very simplistically is that we are using survey data as training data. Yeah. So what we have is that we say, okay, we understand how people feel. Now, with all of the other operational data and behavioral data that we have across the organization, can we use that to predict? what the outcome would be in a survey. So, you know, it's using AI and machine learning really to just do pattern matching, which it is exceptionally good at doing. So looking at all of that operational data saying this kind of pattern of behavior results in somebody being a promoter or top box OSAT or, you know, whatever your key metric is. Mm. Once you've done that, obviously you can then use all of that operational data to predict the score for all of those customers that haven't given you a survey right so and it's it and that that's the piece so you know machine learning and ai is really good really good at doing that pattern matching and looking at lots of data and making sense of it so for us as cx practitioners you know, think the piece is you know okay let's get the machine learning to do that piece now let's start to understand the implications of that into the business let's still look at those attitudes let's see what's important to customers and what they're talking about and layering the two on each other to really help drive decision making 
Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, AI sits right at the centre of this, and I think you've you've kind of explained it there. What you're talking about is is pattern matching. It's predictive, but what it's doing is it's using the data to build up a, an ongoing better picture of, of what's going to happen in the future as a result of people's behavior. So is that is that your definition of AI? Again, because the only, only reason why I ask is I hear the term bandied around a lot and I probably use it interchangeably for different things. But in essence, that's it in this case. Is it's That's how we are using machine learning to drive better understanding. And obviously, there are all sorts of other applications of AI. And I wouldn't class myself as an AI expert. I think you need want to get one of my data scientists um, and talk to them about it because they'll they'll give you much more information it's more about how how is it being used so you know what's the use case so great you've got this ability to start pattern matching and you know predicting what a score will be for every customer you know yeah. what does that mean what does that mean on a day-to-day basis for people um, yeah. and how do you use that internally sorry so so I don't know, I'm going to pick a couple of examples. Let's say somebody who's running a call center or, or trying to deal with the operational aspects of, of delivering a good CX on an ongoing basis. And then at the other end of the spectrum, someone who might be running campaigns if it's a sales organization. I mean, what are you doing there? Are you creating a hub that then gets pushed out to different parts of the organization or how is it typically implemented? Yeah. So let's talk more about, you know, how people would use it. You know, we can talk about how, how you communicate. There's another big, you know, and how do you actually motivate people to make those decisions? Mm. And how do you motivate people to do stuff differently? But, you know, just think about some of the use cases around, you know, yeah, let's say we're, we're in the contact center. I'm talking to one organization at the moment. Um, and, you know, they've got 15,000 customers, B2B organization, 15,000 customers, 5,000 of them are getting proactive help, you know, and support for account management. The rest aren't. Yeah. So now what they can do is say of those 10,000 customers, which ones are likely to have a problem? And using this type of machine learning, you can then say, okay, I can predict that this group of clients are, have potentially got an issue and start to proactively go out and contact them um, and, say, and start talking. So, you know, that's very much the kind of tactical, kind of closed loop kind of piece. But this isn't closed loop poster survey. This is closed loop every day. Yeah, And also you can then start thinking around, you know, you could do a once and done and kind of go, okay, here's the bucket of clients that are unhappy and happy, but also on an ongoing basis, which of those clients have just had a behavior or an experience suggests that they might be about to drop into the unhappy category, you know? So is it that, you know, they've had their 53rd call into the contact center, for example, or, and this is what's really interesting, I'm seeing with a number of organizations, they're having no calls into the contact center and they haven't had any calls into the contact center for six months or however long it is, that threshold. That is an indicator that there's going to be a challenge going right. forward. Okay, so okay. That, that piece is very tactical. And then obviously at the other end, you've got to start thinking about, okay, you know, from your point around from a marketing pe- perspective, you know, if you were going to get a big lump of plasticine and start molding your perfect customer, you know, what does it look like? Um, mm. And at the moment, you know, maybe we're using attitudes and feedback to actually start forming what we think the ideal customer looks like. Using machine learning, you can start looking at the behaviours 
Okay. Okay. So that's where it connects up with the behavioral economics element of it. You're starting to then overlay almost, if I can put it this way, behavioral economic theory around saying, well, we've now understand there's a pattern here that means that we can see that certain types of customers seem to do this and then this. They might not understand why, but we can start to maybe produce some hypotheses that we can then act upon. Is that is that a reasonable way of... Yeah, yeah. And that's what machine learning is all about, is kind of, you know, define your hypotheses from a business right. perspective. What do we think is important? And let's test it. So one that I was testing just yesterday, which was quite interesting, was, you know, as in the B2B space, you know, the number of opportunities that a, a client organisation has with you, you know, the happier they're going to be. But do they actually have to be one opportunities? And what we were seeing in the data is that even if it's lost opportunities, believe it or not, lost opportunities, a larger number of those are a predictor for this organization, let's be very clear, around a much happier client. And you kind of first go, well, that doesn't make sense. But then you start thinking, no, because they've got an interaction with us. They're talking Mm. to us. One lost opportunity, no, that's that's not going to drive it. But two or three plus, great. They're in dialogue. We're building something. Maybe those lost opportunities is because we've turned around to them and said, we don't think this is right for you. We're building that partnership. And that's what's important. So using the data science to challenge maybe some of our preconceived ideas as to what is an indicator of success. Um, and and that to a degree is where the behavioural economics comes in. I'm I'm always say you know I get very concerned about people using behavioural economics with clients and customers because mm. it just feels a little bit yeah well it, it's it's been called sludge rather than nudge you know that that kind of piece. <laughs> yeah, I, I love using behavioural economics internally um, to start saying okay let's you know how can we help people internally do the right thing and change their behaviours. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So. I'll just quickly explore this bit. I mean, I, one of the things that always strikes me when we used to put VOC programs in and we used to put the technology in was the absolute importance of not creating a black box, but but creating something that's visual, it's easily accessible, and people can very quickly feel a sense of trust, I suppose, because I think to the point you were making there, I think it's a really good one, which is too much theory in an operational environment is never going to gel because actually... People don't live like that in a, in a day-to-day operational setting. They kind of have to get through the day. But at the same time, if they want to try and improve things, they've got to get hold of very simple concepts and things that actually allow them to do something. So how do you avoid it becoming a black box? Do you have forums in the same way that we've always done and, and have the kind of, you know, the customer forum or the board looking at stuff? Or how do you how do you run this stuff? Is it any different from any other way of doing VOC? So, you know, it's it's so true. And at this point in the development of AI, I think it is so important that we have what they call transparent rather than opaque. We've got to understand why the machine is making the predictions that it is. You know, we've all seen the horror stories around people being turned down loans or whatever else. And, you know, nobody actually understands why. It's just that's what the machine has said. And it's using all sorts of algorithms in the back end that we don't understand. As soon as we don't understand, then my challenge would be that we've lost that connection. You know, I I think it shouldn't be about artificial intelligence. It should be about augmented intelligence, Mm. augmenting the human, you know, using the machine to support the human decision as to what we're going to do next for a particular client or customer or whatever else. 
if we don't understand that recommendation that this engine has given us, how can we make an informed decision? So I think it's it's really important, really important that we do understand what the, the features, as they're called, within within the machine learning are. You know, let's let's manage the hypotheses and really understand what features it's using. Because it could be, and I have conversations with data scientists on this, you know, daily, that you know, that might be what the maths is telling us. You know, I get it. That's your kind of bottom-up kind mm-hmm. of prediction. But let's actually start bringing that that real world, the business world, the decisions that we're making. It's where those two come together where it gets really clever. Mm. And that can only happen if it's transparent. The worst thing, the worst thing that we can do is, you know, have that kind of computer says no type Mm. piece where people are just, you know, taking this recommendation from the machine and Mm. just using that. We need people to keep their brains engaged. We need people to understand it and actually layer on the information that the machine doesn't have. And Mm. even with most comprehensive, capable system, there is data that they just don't know. Mm. And that's what our role, maybe as an account manager in a B2B um, organization, what do I know that the machine doesn't know? Okay. And let's bring that in as well. Okay. That's interesting. So let's sort of dig into something. It's picked up on something you mentioned a few minutes ago then, which is how do you make this shift into really powerful, empowered decision-making, if you like, within an organization? Because certainly when I've run big programs like this, the moment when you start to see a shift in the organization actually almost instinctively making customer-centric decisions and changing their behavior, both in the experience, i.e. the inner loop, the day-to-day stuff, but also on on a systematic long-term basis is obviously the whole point of doing this. But at the same time, in my experience, it calls for a degree of empowerment at the right level within the organization, which I think connects with what you were just saying there, which is you've got to trust people to use their judgment and not hang their brains on a peg by the door when they come in in the morning and kind of like, oh, well, let's just let the computer deal with it and I'll just kind of run my script. So, I mean, d- does that resonate with you? I mean, why do you think people don't? So, I mean, I, I see quite often leaders very uncomfortable with genuinely letting go and, and letting people do what you're talking about. So how do you overcome that? Oh, gosh, this is oh, a whole no- another session. This, I, I'm absolutely fascinated with this. And, you know, it's called this kind of distributed decision making. And everybody says it makes sense. Why wouldn't you let go um, and let the people who are closest to the issue, closest to the customer, make those decisions? why the hell don't we do it? You know, everybody intellectually goes, well, you know, it just makes sense. Why wouldn't you? You know, McKinsey wrote about this, I dread to think how many years ago, um, saying, come on, you know, and organisations really need to do it. But you're right, they're not doing it. And it's because, well, I think there's a couple of things. I think leaders aren't comfortable that people are going to do the right thing. Mm. You know, and it's that fear of letting go, isn't it? That they they need to have confidence in the decisions that people are going to make. So what's really key there is from a technology perspective, can we get some kind of closed loop in place for the leaders to say, look, people are making the right decisions. And we can start to see that this is the decision they made and this is the outcome. Yeah. 
Okay. So that is positive reinforcement. I get that, understand that. And um, so does that mean, therefore, I mean, certainly in your experience, does this call upon the kind of typical agile approach to things where you start doing something, a relatively small, you know, often called minimum viable product, if you were launching a, a product in this situation, but something that says, look, we're going to try this with the team. Let's see how they get on. Let's try and roll it out. I mean, is it that kind of approach? I mean, I, I suppose the reason why I'm just digging at this is, is, I want people to get a sense here. When this works well, how do you actually uh, get that ball rolling fast enough so that it does that? Is it just teasing it along in an area where you might get a bit of success early and then rolling it out? Or how, how do you do it? So I think I think what's key here is that we, we focus a lot on, you know, getting some feedback, doing some analysis. Three months later, we've got our gorgeous report. You know, here are the big decisions that we're making. Right, let's go into the budget round. You know, let's get some budget for it, et cetera, et cetera. And by that time, you know, the feedback has changed anyway. You know, it's so out of date. You know, you kind of go, well, hang on, the world's moved on. Mm. So this piece around distributed decision-making and, and how you post on the wall that, you know, centric client first you know every decision is made with the client is it is it really and we we focus i think too much on those big systemic strategic issues and as you say that kind of inner loop oh we've got a customer that's unhappy right let's do something about it or we've got a customer that's really happy let's try and sell them some more let's start in between those two. So those think of those as the two extremes of the continuum. And what we're more interested is getting very role specific around what good looks like, right. providing every individual with a really some some pragmatic support around, hey, this is what we believe from the analytics is important to your customers. And this is what that would look like in your role. You know, we we assume, you know, gosh, things like innovation as a brand value, you know, it really is truly important to your customers. What does that look like for somebody sitting in the center? What does that look like within the finance team? Do, do you know what I mean? It's about helping really embody and understand what those behaviors look like. And then, and this is where comes in is giving them that feedback to be saying is it working or not not so cannot do that in time yeah remember you changed the way you talked to to mrs smith three months ago and this was the outcome because mrs smith's now saying that you know she's really happy getting that feedback and that closed loop really close to the behavior so we can start to mold what we're doing and how we're doing it yeah absolutely so it's about very aware around people's day-to-day work what they're doing and pragmatically how we can support the decisions that they are making on a day-to-day basis rather than keeping it very esoteric okay yeah that makes a lot of sense Claire thanks I mean one of the pieces of work we do is quite often exactly what you've just said which is you know you take your high level purpose what you're trying to achieve you take your customer principles And then what we do is we very quickly work with organizations to sort of boil it down into the individual roles within the organization to say, if you're somebody who works in procurement or you're somebody who works in finance, you may not be touching external customers day in, day out, but you can still do your role aligned to these principles that we've got. And you can work out for yourself what that looks like and we can work with you. And then what we can do is we can ask the people that you do interact with on a day-to-day basis, even if they're internal, to kind of 
work out the extent to which you're aligned to those in terms of what you do, but then sort of, you know, help them to sort of articulate if there are things that are happening internally that prevent them from serving the external clients sort of thing. So you can start to look at the whole chain, if you like. And so I think that that resonates with me, what you've just said, because what you're saying there is, is, is putting some proof and some fact over that combined with some, if you like, behavioral economic theory that sort of says, well, look, you know, there seems to be a bunch of people over here that behave in this way, but it's when we do this to them. And actually, you've all got a role to play in that. So sort of aggregate, you know, building it out. Yeah, and it's that cumulative effect, as you say, the aggregate of kind of, you know, what's what's happening here. And it's really interesting because, you know, what, what we're doing is we use the customer journey as a framework for all of this data. So, you know, that gives us our framework that we understand, you know, where it's all coming from. Mm. One of the, the biggest ahas for us when we were developing it was this kind of the importance of this unified view. And, you know, we're all kind of heads down within each of our stage in the customer journey. And we've got our KPIs, haven't we? And, we're, you know, we're working away at, at, at delivering on that. And, you know, the big challenge is where, where are those fracture lines across the journey? Where are those fracture lines across the organization? Which means what I'm doing here at the beginning of the journey, what is the implications further mm. down? Mm. You know, and the other way around, actually, you know, and, and really starting. So we kind of talk about kind of heads down systems and heads up systems so that you can actually start lift your head just for a minute. Yeah. Don't ignore your KPIs that you've got to deliver on. But let's just lift up and let's understand what I'm doing and how that implicate the implications of that for, for other stages in the journey. And what the data science, the machine learning shows is when you start to bring all of these operational data points into play is that you can really start to to map out that interconnectedness Mm. and start to, you know, talk to the salespeople about, you know, expectation setting at the beginning of the journey. How important is that? You know, Mm. one organization I'm working with at the moment, for goodness sake, I know that, you know, they want to reduce the cost of the overall contract. So they take out the training. Seriously, let's have a look at what implications that has further down the line. Mm. Let's have a look at the implications of taking out the services. And that is really starting to change behaviours and getting people to work much more as a team with that final outcome. And under, But understanding that, that chain of connectedness, you yep. know, okay, because most people kind of go you know, particularly something like NPS, you know, one of those really high level metrics, well, what the hell, you know, why am I being measured on the net promoter score? What can I do, you know, Mm. to change that number? I can't. Well, yeah, you can. And let's show you what behaviours, as you say, are going to be important. Yeah, and that that's going to drive the outcome. Yeah, that I mean that's that's great to hear because um, it gives me comfort that we're doing the right thing as well. Because it seems to be um, we've certainly come at it more from a an experience point of view, where we tried it once and it seemed to work. But um, that's great to hear. So thank you. So you mentioned the uh, the dreaded acronym there, NPS, Net Promoter Score. For anyone who um, who doesn't know uh, what that means, um, the the extent to which a customer would recommend you, basically, that's a great moment to kind of just switch into metrics if i if i may just for a moment because um again history lesson but you know historically a lot of obsession around this and still a lot of obsession around not just nps but other key measures that people use net effort score uh, satisfaction you know in, in a lot of cases still so uh, we used to use or i've still done it now with clients really we, we often have a high level metric like nps still because the organization is comfortable with it and it 
it often finds its way into exec programs of remuneration, that kind of thing. But we used to use that more as a, an outcome measure and focus and obsess more with the drivers that, that do that, which I think is a lot of what we've been talking about. Very long way of getting to this question, really, but, but what role in your experience do these kind of, if you like, pillar measures still play and can they still be useful in terms of finding their way into a program where at least you can summarize at a level, but then do the, the, the kind of the forensic work under the surface to work out why and kind of deal with it. I mean, do, do you still see that they have a, a value in a program? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. I am totally agnostic and at OCX, we're, we're completely agnostic on which metric you want to use. You need to have some granularity within it to be able to, to measure change. And also from a machine learning, just being very pragmatic about it, it's useful to be able to break it down into the net promoter, promoter, passive and detractor or top box, bottom box, middle box, you know, that kind of piece, because y- you can drive predictions much more accurately. Right. And, and the one thing I do like about NPS is that, you know, it is linked to behavior and it's much easier for people to understand, hey, you're a promoter rather than, you know, you've got no SAT score of 6.23. That's helpful. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think you're right. So I think we need kind of what we found is that you need really three levels of measurement. You need that overall, that kind of headline metric, as you say, Neil, which is your kind of rallying point. Mm. You know, hey, how are we doing? And the most important thing about that is that people understand it. We don't Mm -hmm. want the black box and that they can see how they connect to it. So let's have that overarching. And that's obviously when we start getting very practical around, you know, which clients do we need to or customers do we need to do something about? What metric are we using? We then take it down to the kind of journey stages because right. that is very actionable. So we can we can be very clear around accountability and who's going to be driving the action and change. Mm. There, you don't want to be using NPS. That's not appropriate. You know, then it was talking about effort, OSAT, you know, those type of measures to be saying overall, how happy were you with your services experience or whatever it is. But that's really kind of a, a jumping off point into the levers and to your point around you know what are the diagnostics what is it that I can do to drive change in that area now and and this is where by bringing together attitudinal and survey data and operational data we've got a real big win because people are used to looking at their KPIs. They're used to measuring, you know, I don't know if it's kind of response time within the support yeah. team or, or whatever else. If we've got those KPIs already in the in the business, people know how to move them. What we can do now is that we can make that linkage for you between, well, how important is it around improving that response time? Not based on what people are telling you, but obviously that's another great feed into the model but from their behaviors you know so how many how how quick does your response time need to be to to drive a great overall metric Mm. score Mm. or satisfaction at that stage Mm. but let's please and you know i think the 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 one thing that i i want you know people to take from this is if we separate out cx and CX metrics from how people are measuring the performance of the rest of the business, we won't get where we want to be. No. You know, CX and all of that piece has to be part of the day-to-day measurement 
And we have to understand the connection between those KPIs that we already have in place and the CX metrics as well. Once we get that, we might even be saying, hey, guys, we're measuring the wrong thing. You know, <laughs> This yeah. is really not important. We've made this assumption that response time is the be all and end all or whatever it is. And um, actually, it's not. And no. So let's stop trying to drive down um, response time because there's some other stuff elsewhere in the journey that's much more important. No, absolutely. And does that therefore manifest itself in a kind of a more contemporary scorecard, if I can call it that way? I mean, I'm again, I'm obsessing with the, the day-to-day operational impact, but I think for people that haven't necessarily ventured into this degree of sophistication, it'd be helpful to understand what am I confronted with if I'm a a contact center team manager or a, or a, somebody who's trying to do the scheduling or the quality or whatever. I mean, what do you see? What do you see on a day-to-day basis that enables you to, to do this stuff? So exciting. So exciting. <laughs> God, I'm such a nerd now. I really am. I do worry sometimes that, you know, when I was eight, you did I ever think I would much. get so nerdy? <laughs> yeah, you haven't been out much recently. So, yeah. This is what lockdown has done to me. It's turned me into a real nerd. Go on, nerd out for a bit. Go for it. Come on, shall we? So, we love a dashboard, don't we? Oh, lovely. Let's look at more metrics. Let's look at more numbers. Oh, shall I trend that one? Let me do a deep dive. You know, but the reality is, I hate to say this, CX pros out there, people in business really don't. You know, we're spending all of this time developing yet more dashboards that people mm. aren't looking at. Right. Um, so I think we've got to take a deep breath, you know, wipe the tear from our eye and recognise that. So, the, the, well, two things really. What what we're working on at the moment is is very much, you know, let's tell people what they need to know when they need to know it. So mm. it's much more a, a system that will give you that notification. It will tell you, hey, well, heads up a second, guys, there's something going on here that you need to know about. Yeah. So that's number one. And that needs to go into their native working environment. You know, right. where where are they? What's their heads down system? If they're in CRM all, the, all day, every day, let's go there. If they're in service now, let's go there and make those notifications. If they're in their email every day, okay, let's do it within email. But, you know, I sometimes worry about email. So that's that's number one. Don't assume that people are going to come, you know, build it and they will come. They won't. <laughs> they, no, they really no. don't. <laughs> Absolutely not. But then the other piece is, I think we touched on it earlier, didn't we, about this idea of a unified view. Yep. So the beauty of the balanced scorecard for me was always, and this never went down beyond um, senior management, was let's get a complete picture, a complete perspective across the organisation wouldn't that be great to do that across the customer journey? So imagine that we can say, hey, boom, boom, boom. This is our overall score, guys. This is how we're doing. But now let's help you understand the whole of the customer journey, how we're performing across the whole of the customer journey, and then drill down. And, you know, maybe you're an account manager responsible for that, you know, the buying and the renewing and all of that kind of piece. Mm. But to enable you to then drill down, you know, as you're going into a meeting with a client to be able to say, okay, I can see for that client, their um, measures across the whole of the journey. But then I can drill down and look at those key indicators within the support to be saying, okay, what does this look like for my client? So, 
it's about having that granularity. It's about being able to get down to the things that really matter. You know, we've always talked about key drivers. But mm. what are those key drivers and the KPIs in the business that we can use as those? But let's ensure that we've got that overview um, as well. And that's shared across the team. Yeah, yeah. And I, I totally get that. And that's really interesting because it, it's so aligned to what we used to do in, in my VOC business. We just, you know, we, we used to have dashboards but a really really simple level for everybody so it didn't matter if you were somebody answering the phone or you were somebody who ran the entire uh, center or indeed the business you know quite often ceos had their own version of it but so it's it's being able to see a relevant view to you within that do you also blend what i'd call employee experience data so so couple of examples just to make that clear to what I'm talking about even down to surveys with you know on a regular basis people you know, how are you finding it serving customers at this point in the journey is it hard for you what's stopping you from doing it or indeed almost sort of emotional driver sort of thing you know kind of how do you feel today <laughs> stuff I've seen people do that sort of thing where they're kind of checking in systematically with the employee base and they sort of start to draw correlations between unhappy employees and unhappy customers very simplistically right so does that come into the mix at all from your point of view so god i've been such an advocate for ex and cx and that they're two sides of the same coin and Mm. you know all of that kind of piece that if if we ignore our employees we're going to have a riot on our hands i think Mm. you know how hacked off would you be that you know you're in the contact center you're talking to i don't know how many clients customers a day and you know these cx people come in and go i don't care about what you think i want to talk to the customers you go I know what the problems are. I can yeah. tell you what the problems yeah, yeah, are. Yeah. Please just talk to me. Yeah. Um, but also then, how arrogant of us to say, you know, we're going to go and talk to your customers and they're going to tell us what we think. And then we're going to loop back to you and expect you to do something about it. We've got to get people engaged. We've got to help them understand that, yeah, we're listening. We understand. We're going to get so much insight mm. from that, from the employee. And Oh, God, there's so much research that shows that connection between, you know, you get your employee experience right and you're going to get your customer experience right. There's a lag, you know, and the lag changes depending on industry, but it's there. But fundamentally as well, you know, we were talking earlier around back into the AI space. The machine only knows the data that we're pushing into it. Yeah. And what we need is to understand what the employees think of and being really, really simplistic about it. As you say, you know, we can do a survey not only around, you know, how they're feeling, you know, which is really important, um, their perspective on what the challenges are for the business and within their role, really important. But third, what is it that they know about the customer that we don't, you know, I have yet to find an organization that says that their CRM system is perfect. You know, they've got all the data that they need Mm. and it's up to date and, you know, they have no problem mapping it. You know, it's just gorgeous. Reality check, we're not there. And as we know, old-fashioned surveys, we must not go and ask the customer something that we already know about them. You know, so which product did you buy? That's right. You know, but, you know, God, so so many, so many are still in that situation. But you can ask the account manager, 
Yeah. You know, um, yeah. so that can be a source of all sorts of kind of operational and behavioral data again that can be fed into this model. You know, the beauty, the beauty around AI and machine learning is the more data, the better. You know, it can handle data like there's no tomorrow and you're just going to get more accuracy. Please let's not in- ignore f- on so many bases. You know, mm. if we ignore employees, you know, we really are screwed. We really yeah, are. Yeah. I'm minded of something, one of our clients, I won't say who it was, but many years ago, and we were setting up a program and it, we it, we did it during Love the Customer Week, um, which they were running at the time. You've never heard that one before, but it wasn't a criticism. It was it was something they did quarterly um, and it was, it was pretty effective. And they actually happened to launch it on Valentine's Day, which kind of, you know, uh, really cheesed a few people off because of the kind of almost, you know, we do this every quarter, we collect data from our customers, and then we do nothing with it. And so with the encouragement of the person who was sort of like our key sponsor, if you like, who rather mischievously let us get on with it and um, probably didn't necessarily go to the right level within the organization, we asked some pretty pithy questions of the employees, kind of sort of saying, to what extent do you really think we love the customer? And with an open-ended sort of, why do you answer it that way? How easy do we make it for you to serve people in the way that we train you to do? Uh, and then a couple of, I mean, we only asked four questions. And my God, I mean, we, we we probably didn't need to go and get any customer research for a year. But we did, but we didn't actually need to because we everything that came out of that survey, which we acted upon, the, the customers were saying exactly the same thing, almost down to like, you know, the, the ridiculous, we actually got them to judge stuff out of 10, for example, to see what customers did. And, and they were almost within point one, point two in terms of how close they were. Not, I, and I, I wasn't surprised, but I was amazed at how it opened the floodgates. And, and actually, you know, what I'm thinking now is if, if we had the ability to connect up a lot of the other operational data at the time and feed it into the kind of thing that you're talking about here, I think we would have made massive strides forward by taking that simple view and actually then quantifying the impact of that within the business. So, uh, yeah, I remember, was it, this was so long ago, actually, so I can probably name it. It was in a public forum. So I remember this year, many years ago, Bank of America said that they kind of had that aha moment and decided to, you know, ask the employees and they were kind of going, oh yeah, but I don't think they'll care enough and they won't give us any feedback and all of that kind of stuff. They had to turn it off because they were getting so much feedback the big challenge of course was obviously that their technology is many many moons ago but you know the technology wasn't coping the technology can cope with it there's no problem there but are we ready as a leadership team to actually do something with it and we yeah. think it's important to act when when our customers tell us something my god if you don't do it right with your employees you know you you really are going to have a challenge yeah one of the other bits you know i think it's you know it's interesting you're saying that they were within 0.1 of you know what customers were thinking i love looking at that gap analysis so yeah. what i've done quite a lot is said hey you know particularly with account teams can you predict what you think the customer would be saying around these different stages in the journey. What do you think the customer would say about X, Y, Z? And really what's what's interesting is, yeah, do they know their customer or not? Which tells you a lot. But also we could see that some of them were the opposite way around. So, you know, they were saying the customer was quite happy and the team were going, nah, this is really screwed. And the reason being is that 
the brilliant people within the team were using sticky tape and string to make it invisible, all the problems that they were having with the process. Mm. They were using sticky tape and string, Mm. sticking it together so that the customer wasn't aware. Mm. And if you just listen to the customer, you're going to miss all of that detail about where the challenges really are in in your systems. And drivers of burnout and sickness and also quite serious stuff that that really impacts staff because... um, and yeah, no, I, I totally resonate with that. I've, I've seen situations where you get good high scores, you get good performance within the business. And then when you, you step in and within five minutes in the contact center, you kind of look around and go, right, something really wrong here because these guys are really in trouble. You know, they're not, they're not finding this easy. Um, so. And isn't it, stuff. you know, God, we haven't talked about COVID. What a, what a relief in some ways. Um, <laughs> but, you know, post the pandemic, you know, there's a lot of talk about how customers' behaviours are going to change, you know, how their attitudes to, to brands is going to change. And, you know, one of the things that I hope comes out of this is that we are going to be all thinking a little bit more carefully around which brands we want to buy from. And that employee experience is what people are saying is important. Let's see, you know, um, if the revenues follow. But, you know, I really hope that this is going to be, you know, a bit of a step change that people want to buy from organisations that live by their values, stand by their values, and their employees are getting a great experience as well as the customer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Here, here. Quickie, if I may, um, we're sort of moving towards the end now, but I'm just sort of in my mind, I'm sort of stepping through the process that I go through in terms of thinking about this this whole subject area. And this might be a very quick one, but the often missed and really important part of these programs is actually once you've done something is actually tell the customers, not, you know, we talked about the employees, but actually, you know, you've, you've solicited a lot of feedback, you've analyzed a load of data. Is there still a role in the same way as it always has been of, of creating that final closed loop to tell your customers what you've actually done as a result of things? And I, I, it sounds like an obvious question, but I suppose the, the, the thing that's in my mind is you're talking here about lots of data, quite a lot of which you haven't solicited from the customers. So the question is, do you need to still tell them anyway as a, as a continually improving organization or not? Because they might not have told you. you, know? you you're so, so true. Yeah. So the, the quick answer is yes. Uh, we can move on. But let's maybe dig in a little bit, yeah. a little bit more into that. There's so many different levels of this. So absolutely, you're going to make some drive, some strategic change. If, if you are doing, let's hope not, maybe that once a year survey and then it goes into, you know, the budgeting process. Of course, we need to go back and tell customers what we're going to do about it. And most importantly, what we're not going to do and maybe why we're not, that will drive up response rates, you know, all all of that good stuff. More importantly for me is, you know, particularly in the B2B space is don't do this. Do not do surveys as a kind of, all right, we do the day to day, you know, we're working with this organization and then, oh, let's do a survey on Valentine's Day or whatever day it is does not make sense. If we can layer in that survey as part of the way we manage that client, then the client will get much more perspective as to, you know, why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, with the technology that's available, it's it's dead easy now. You know, you can do it on a, a monthly cadence where, you know, you're capturing feedback from, you know, a twelfth of your customer base yeah. or whatever it is, depending on their renewal date or whatever else. It's so, so important. So it makes sense, but also then ensures that you've got that time when you're going to go back to that customer and talk to them and talk to them about not only the changes that we're making generically, 
but let's put stuff right for you. Mm. And this is where it gets really important to your point around, well, hey, we've got all of this other data that we didn't actually capture from you, but we've captured from your behavior. Mm. You know, again, let's get the transparency right. Let's talk to them about that, you know, particularly in the B2B2C or where you've got a large B2B where you've got maybe multiple contacts, multiple relationships um, around the globe. When you're having that conversation with your key decision maker, you know, to let them know this is what we're hearing. This is what we're hearing from your customers if it's a B2B2C or this is what we're hearing from your colleagues around the globe and this is what your behaviors are saying to us Um, and let's look at it you know it might be we go no Claire we don't want more lost opportunities you know that's not the way of growing this business but let's have those conversations and let's be really transparent you know again post-pandemic people want partnership you know it's about human contact it's about those relationships so let's really build partnerships which is about having conversations yeah Interesting. Yeah, you know, and giving a a different and novel spin on a reason to go and talk to a client, particularly in a B two B thing. I suppose what was resonating in my mind there is, you know, quite often you speak to really good account managers, and you know they spend a lot of time manufacturing good reasons to go and have a conversation without making it sound too contrived. And actually, this sounds like a good source of uh, of stuff here, which is you, know, you might not realise it, but this is what you're doing, sort of thing. Yeah. And and particularly if we can help them prioritize Mm. which of the clients they really need to talk to today and which ones they can leave maybe till next week then you know even better even better yeah interesting great um last bit on this really before i just do a couple of quick fire ones where where do you sort of see all this going claire i mean you've obviously a bit like me you know you've been doing this for a while and you've seen it go from the the very, very basic email stroke paper surveys even. And goodness me, I remember when we put our first survey on a mobile phone, it was a very exciting moment using WAP, but uh, shows how old I am. But I mean, where do you see all this going? And do you see a continuation of this kind of data analytic approach to things? Do you see anything else emerging anywhere else in the world? Yeah, it's, it's so funny because sometimes I think you know, we get we get stuck in this, what, what we believe is the reality. And so, yeah, it's all about AI. You know, let's look at your data lake and you've got all of this data and it's all great and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, particularly when we're talking like this, I think there's an assumption that that's done and dusted and people are there and, and what's next. Um, and please don't get me wrong. I, I'm very happy to talk about what's next. I think what people, the biggest challenge that people have got at the moment is connecting data um, and bringing it together. And I I think one of the biggest challenges we've got is that this data exhaust, you know, as as customers and clients go through your customer journey, they're leaving all of this exhaust of data. Some of it we're capturing, some of it we're not. Even with the stuff that we're capturing, can we connect it? Can we get this holistic unified view from all of this data so it's awful because in some ways it's dead boring for us because we're going oh jesus so yeah come on guys we need the unique identifiers we need to be able to pull this together i think there's some some really exciting pieces again in the ai space around making that with neural networks being able to connect data that potentially doesn't look like it's connectable but being able to make those linkages so i think i think that's going to be key because i think it is you know 
knowledge is power, as they always say. It's not good enough that we've got these data lakes where, you know, we go fishing and we just pull out an old boot, you know, because we just, it's it's not useful to us. And it's, we're back to being overwhelmed mm. with all this data, which <laughs> the psychologist of me will say, you know, what's happening is people don't dare ask the question because they think they should know the answer. Mm. You know, oh, I won't go and ask my IT team, you know, about how to do this because, you know, it's there somewhere and I just haven't got it. Mm. That's not your fault. But no. That's about getting the information into people's hands in a way that's useful to them. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think, you know, absolutely that's what's key. We've got to focus on the pragmatic use cases of transparent, transparent AI. Let's not have situations where we don't understand what the AI is doing. Um, the other piece that I talk about when when you think thinking about, you know, AI is that, you know, it's just not mature. You know, it, it, it really isn't. It's quite dangerous um, yeah. at the moment. You know, we've got to we've got to supervise and understand what it's doing. So let's make sure that we get that. And, and let's let the data scientists, they will continue to d- develop some of the, particularly the neural network capability and, and, and some of the more advanced capabilities. In the meantime, we need to sort out our data and we need to start understanding how to use this more effectively. Yeah, very interesting points. I mean, I, I think we're definitely seeing clients really start to realise that this horrible data cleanse, I'm going to simplistically call it, that they've been putting off probably for 10, 15, <laughs> 10, 15 years, has just got to happen now because every part of their organisation needs to be built on a solid foundation of good data that enables them to not only do the kind of stuff that we've been talking about, but just transactionally work better. If you're going to put robotic process automation in place, it can only run on data, right? So, and it'll get it wrong if you don't. So, um, and, and then you lose the human sticky tape that you talked about earlier because there won't be anyone there managing the workarounds. And we see, we're seeing that a lot, you know, particularly in the kind of customer success space is what are the automated plays? You know, what is the email that we send in this situation and that situation? As you say, you know, if the, if the data is dirty underneath it, you know, Thanks. but on the other hand, you know, being practical about it is that you know it's only when you start using the data that people start to cleanse it you know you yeah. can go out to your account manager uh, until you're blue in the face saying please can you cleanse your contact data you know the best way to get cleansed contact data is to say i'm going to send a survey out to all of these people tomorrow mm. Are you sure you want it to go yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Clean it up, but don't clean it up direct with me. Clean it up in the CRM so yeah. it's ready for next time. Sounds like a conversation we're having within my company at the moment, actually. But uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I won't put too much on that. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. No. Thank you. Really, really good. And that's. Uh, I, I think we've we've cantered through a whole load of stuff there, but really practical, good advice around just how you make this stuff work practically for you, and and also. I think the key thing I would take away from it, I love the phrase, um, the exhaust, you know, the the, the experience exhaust is really good. Uh, and, and, you know, just, just harvesting that. A couple of quick fires at the end, if I may, just to sort of, um, I ask this for, for all, uh, anyone who comes on the, the program. I mean, what do you think being truly customer-centric means? Being truly customer-centric is connecting as a human being to another human being, you know, coming from you know a, a B two B space in particular, you know, um, I think people forget how important the human is, and I think the last year has put that in context for us all. Mm. Be a human being, listen, really listen, 
mm. and think about the implications of that and and respond appropriately brilliant and can you think of an experience that you've had that really defines fantastic customer experience that's kind of left you feeling emotionally more connected or certainly hugely positive towards a, an organization maybe in the recent past just I, I love to get these little stories of uh, good stuff that happens we're going to the bad in a minute Do you know yeah it, gosh i should have prepared this shouldn't i and, th- and thought about it um so Again, I suppose maybe it's it's it, well. Of course, it's going to be about human connection, isn't it? And you know, we're all going on to these kind of digital experiences more and more, and that's really important. And no service is good service, and we all get that. So, as a consumer in that kind of consumer space, I think when I've yeah, in the last in the last few days, I've spoken to guess guess what, First Direct and LV, you know, and. We know these are the classic people who've been doing great work from a CX perspective. Mm. And I did, I came off those calls and thinking, what was great about it? You know, what was it that that made that different? You know, A, you know, I shouldn't be having to call them in the first place. So for goodness sake, sort out your digital experience first direct because it's not not as great as it should be. But maybe they're trying to force people to call into that contact center because they know that team is what makes the difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's an interesting <laughs> and thought. Yeah. Human beings at the end of the phone that just connect to you as another human being and have a bit of a giggle, you know, are real and do the right thing. So mm-hmm. the other bit there though is where they must understand what I've done on the digital. So having that connection. So and I think that joined upness across channels is really key moving forward. And, you know, I don't think we can get away with it for much longer. You know, people, no. are, their expectation is that it will be, it will yeah. be there and it will be good. Yeah, no, absolutely. And on the flip side, maybe, well, if you can name the organisation you want, I don't mind, but a terrible experience you've had that, that kind of almost summarises the opposite. Oh, gosh. It is that piece around people forcing you into their process. I had, you know, a phone call from BMW this morning and it was kind of no interest as to, you know, hang on, I'm just, I'm getting on this phone to Neil. You know, I can't, I can't deal with this now. Well, you know, your car is la, 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 la. I don't even know what it was about. But that lack of understanding around where I am, what's important to me, but really kind of, you know, no matter what, sticking to their process. And yeah, I I think I think that's the real challenge. And again, you know, really, really poor CX, you you don't see quite so much um, as we used to. And that makes it harder for organisations, I think, because those kind of low-hanging fruit around putting the obviously, obviously appalling things right, most people have done. Not not all, not all, but most. So, okay, how do we lift the bar? Yep. Okay. And final, final, I promise. What's one thing that you've learned in your career that you could never have learned at business school? Gosh, what's the one thing that I've learned? I, I think it's that connection to the front line. It's that connection to, if you don't listen to the people that know, you can sound very clever, you can make all sorts of decisions in the boardroom, you can, you know, look at data and analytics. If you don't understand what people are doing on a day-to-day basis and understand what they need, then you're never going to drive change. 
Perfect. I couldn't agree more. That's why I always, uh, if I'm ever doing an assignment associated with customer experience, we we will do our very best to actually sit in the contact center for the duration of the thing in the days when you could go into offices and hopefully they'll come back at some point. But uh, Yeah, we've got to sit in people's bedrooms with them now though, haven't we? Which is not <laughs> it's, even, <laughs> it's even worse, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, Claire. Thank you so much for uh, for giving up the time and um, sharing your, your wisdom on this subject and, and lots of wonderful experiences there. I'm sure that um, the people listening to this have got a lot out of how you take you know quite complex theory technology and turn it into practical stuff using tools and things that we've done for a long time but just perhaps doing it in a more informed and better joined up way so uh, exactly exactly it's all out there it's not you know it's not that clever when you scratch the surface please you know it it really isn't and it's all available to us we've just got to you know let's start getting the value out of it yeah lovely okay great stuff thanks claire see you again thanks neil thank you bye Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.